Midnight Tidal Wave is the song that we're using to open up episode 356 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, but I can't take credit for the song you're hearing. It's from the band Surferific Dude. So they're a surf band based out of Lynchburg, Virginia. It's on their album Mountain Wave. Go check them out at surferificdudes.bandcamp.com. There'll be a link in the show notes, of course. And let them know that you heard about them here on the show. It's an EP release, five songs. They're all good. This one's one of my favorites. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here. And I'm excited because, well, you know, I say this every week. Does it lose its impact if I open every episode by saying I'm excited because, because I'm just an excited guy, I guess. I'm an excited monster kid because I'm getting to podcast this week with somebody that I've been podcasting for a very very long time. I feel like I've got some of the best podcasting chemistry with Scott Morris from Disney, Indiana. He and I have been collaborating for years. And because of that, the conversation that you're going to hear us having about the movie Attack of the Giant Leeches is kind of a loose one. We talk about the movie, of course, but there's a lot of sidetracking. And and that seems to happen a lot when a couple of monster kids get talking. But this time around, well, I think I tell the story of the Crestwood House books again. I may reveal the secret of how I got my wife to marry me, and Scott reveals the secret of how he got his wife to marry him. Uh, let's see. What else happens in the episode or in the conversation? I think we're going to talk a little bit about Roger Corman, some Euro spy films. It's just a, a fun time, and it's a fun movie. Don't want to play my hand early, but it's Attack of the Giant Leeches. It's a good time. Before we get to that, though, we've got some feedback. We have two emails. Hey, and speaking of my marriage, my wife agreed to read the emails this time around. So, Brenda, take it away. So this is from Chris and Cindy Franklin, but I read it as Frankenstein. (laughs) Hi, Derek. Double compliments on two great episodes, one in the podcast verse and one in the YouTube verse. I thoroughly enjoyed seeing you and Chris talk bride on my TV. I was lucky enough to see the Frankenstein slash bride double feature Cinemark ran a few years back around Halloween. I had already put it at the top of all universal horror films, but that big screen presentation nailed it. Oh, and I loved your animated intro with the monsters heading out for a rally at MKR headquarters. That is pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing somebody did that for you. you name Joseph Schultz. Joseph Schultz. It's pretty incredible that Joseph did that for you. Back to podcasting. During your discussion about Vampire, you mentioned In a Glass Darkly. That was Lee Fanu? Le Not Le Fanu? Le Fanu. <laughs> that was Le Fanu's anthology, where Carmilla was originally published. I have never seen Vampire, but I have always heard it was a loose adaptation of Carmilla. Apparently very loose, compared to the surprisingly faithful The Vampire Lovers, as Dominique pointed out. Speaking of Dominique, great story. It really does make one wonder why Hammer didn't think of doing a Dracula slash Frankenstein crossover, especially when their fortunes were failing in the early 70s. Again, keep up the good work as you conquer all media. Chris. It's Chris from the Supermates Podcast, which is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network over at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I'll be playing a promo for their podcast here in a little bit, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Thank you for writing in, Chris. Uh, you know, I really appreciate the feedback regarding Vampire. Man, that 
that movie, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more with the next email we got, but that movie, it blew my mind. It, it really did. It's so, so good. And uh, I would love to share it with my wife, actually, and see if she'd be up for watching it. It's, it's definitely weird, but it's beautiful, and I just so much good stuff. And again, I know Brenda said something while she was recording the email and kind of put in a few thoughts, but Joseph Schultz is the man. That animation that he did for the beginning of Monster Kid Radio on YouTube, that series, it's amazing that he did that. It means so much that he was willing to do that, and he just offered it up. He's like, hey, I got a surprise for you. I'm like, dude, that's amazing. So cool. As far as the YouTube channel, I don't have anything going up this week, but maybe this weekend we'll have something going up. Just real life gets in the way sometimes, and, and I wasn't able to record what I wanted to record for YouTube. But I will be recording something very soon, so stay tuned. And uh, listeners, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Monster Kid Radio is on YouTube now. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on YouTube and you'll find the channel. Please consider subscribing because the more subscribers I get, the closer I get to being able to join YouTube's program affiliate ad thing. And that would be awesome. Thanks for writing in, Chris. And oh, by the way, speaking of Chris, he's got a new podcast coming up covering Justice League and Justice League Unlimited's animated series. He's a big comic book guy, and I'm going to be honest, I'm in that point of year right now. It seems like the beginning of the year I typically get into comics again and superhero stuff, and I mean, this excites me because the Justice League is pretty darn cool. Anyway, they're going to be doing a, a new podcast as well, and that it's going to be fun, and I'm looking forward to it. And right now, they're doing a tie-in. Fire and Water presents those wonderful toys. It's an episode showcasing their favorite JLU figures, and then the JLU cast will drop next week. Got another email from Micah Harris. Micah is a friend of the show. He's been on the show before, and I'm going to let Brenda take it away. Okay, this is from Micah. He says, so, King Kong and Vampire." That was one wacky double feature. But I must say, somebody programming film retrospectives over there on the West Coast has excellent taste. Regarding you and your friends' ruminations on Vampire and how it is so different from what American films were doing with horror at that time, this is something I have already given some thought to myself. So here's what I've come up with. Cinema is part of the same great age of invention that gave us the light bulb, telephones, and the automobile. These inventions took place during the time the philosophy of positivism held sway in science. Positivism assumes predictable laws of nature in a stable universe discoverable through empirical methods of experimentation and observations. Damn, Micah's smart. Yeah. I personally don't buy the naturalistic slash materialistic assumptions of positivism as necessary for science to be done, and history shows it is, in fact, not. I don't think positivism was a required mental precursor for the light bulb to appear in human affairs. However, that is the general philosophic notion in vogue at the time the technology that made movies possible was worked out. My thesis is that in Hollywood, positivism influenced not only movie-making technology, but how movies were made and also the kinds of stories we were told. Although one can find exceptions, early golden age Hollywood tended to tell stories that were based in naturalism. Even the sets, though obviously on a stage, were a replication of nature as we know it on a dependable day-to-day -day basis. I think this positivist 
approach is why American cinema was so slow in accepting supernatural horror as a genre. As you know, until the Lugosi Dracula, monsters, that's in quotes, in American cinema were either grotesquely disfigured humans, such as the Phantom of the Opera or the Hunchback of Notre Dame, or of the Scooby-Doo variety, the crooked lawyer in the hideous disguise who is killing off the legal heirs in the old dark house the night of the reading of the will, etc. Presenting a vampire as a vampire was a gamble in 1931 for Universal, and one that fortunately for us, they won. European cinema that would give us the tradition of movie makers like Fellini and Bergman and Antonioni, etc., wasn't governed by positivism, which essentially denies the supernatural, at least by the time the camera rolled on Vampire. Look at the Lugosi Dracula side by side with Vampire. Both have supernatural entities, but which one is obviously more grounded in the naturalistic world? Only thusly would Hollywood dip their toe in the cauldron waters before sliding in up to their necks. Note that follow-up. Frankenstein is basically science fiction, not supernatural horror. Mary Shelley implied Victor Frankenstein was into some borderline occult stuff to raise the dead, but Universal had Kenneth Strickfadden and some positivist-era-generated electricity. Who needs alchemy? We got electronic whirligigs. Who needs Cornelius Agrippa? We got some guy named Kenny Strickfadden. Vampire, whose release in America was delayed, by the way, so as not to steal the limelight from Universal's Dracula, is hardly in the positivist universe at all. It's not just that vampires are irrational interjections into an otherwise predictable world where everybody else is reflecting in the mirror, just the guy in the tux is missing. No, all you need to do to get weirded out in this movie is just take a walk down the street. The whole world is upside down and nobody notices anything is especially wrong but you. That is creepy. Because you're you're second guessing yourself. Our unflappable paranormal investigator enters a dream reality where predictable cause and effect has broken down. We have reflections with no source, shadows off on their own walkabout, and then rejoin themselves to their source. Or maybe they had their own independent existence and found a suitable match, someone in need of a good shadow in which to attach themselves? Vampiric parasitic imagery here, perhaps? Can we talk about for a minute the possibility of like a match.com for shadows with people? <laughs> like the body, you know, height and shape would be pretty important. You kind of want that to match. But like, what about the personality aspects? Like this shadow doesn't like to go outside a lot. So they need somebody who stays home, a homebody. You know, what would that be called? What is that book or that little like kid's book, Your Shadow and My Shadow and Me? Is that a kid's book? Did I just make that up? My Shadow and Me. That's the name of the dating site for shadows and people. All right. Sorry. Where was I? Who can possibly know for sure in wherever our boy has fallen into, because positivism is absolutely useless on this turf. 
I think it was Dominique who commented on the effect the First World War had on European cinema. Good call. Maybe the war shook Europe loose from the grip of positivism, as the Great War as they called it back then, was a total breakdown of rationality, a nightmare reality engulfing their continent. That's kind of what I was thinking of, because we were real big on morale and and keeping things upbeat and realistic. And unfortunately, Europe was on the other side of that, like truly terrible things were happening. And that was expressing itself through cinema, just like it I feel like it expresses itself through, um, you know, when zombies became popular, what was going on that changed slow zombies to fast zombies and all this other stuff. Blah, blah, blah. This is not about you, Brenda. Okay. I think it was Dominique who commented on the effect the First World War had on European cinema. Good call. Maybe the war shook Europe loose from the grip of positivism, as the Great War, as they called it back then, was a total breakdown of rationality, a nightmare reality engulfing their continent. Vampire is almost modernistic. Originally a literary and artistic European movie that really kicked in after the first war over there, Vampire reminds me of those sections of modernist poet T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, where post-World War I Europe is breaking down so much that the laws of physics no longer hold, including upside-down towers in the air and bats with baby faces crawling around, while a woman plays violin music with a bow on her long hair. So, I think it would have been impossible for American cinema to produce anything like Vampire at the time, due to the still prevailing positivist roots of cinema over here, but not so in Europe, if they ever were. However, I don't mean they were more open to a spiritual reality over there, but they were moving into a more modernistic view of the universe of quantum physics and relativity theory, a more unpredictable view than that of positivism that was still fixed among filmmakers over here. Hence, the supernaturalism of Vampire is ultimately even less supernatural than that of Dracula, I think, because Dracula still presupposes a rational universe in which an element unexplainable by those laws has erupted and thus points to something beyond natural. Vampire in the European modernist mode uses the supernatural as a metaphor for a more unpredictable but still totally naturalistic universe. There are laws, but they aren't as rigid as we thought. Not so much the same everywhere as you'd count it on. Related to modernism, we're getting surrealism at this time. Come to think of it, I think Vampire is much more similar movie to Dali and Buñuel's The Adalusian dog than to Todd Browning's Dracula. Interestingly, Hollywood's closest thing to vampire in my mind, in Golden Age horror, as far as a dream world mood, is Freund's The Mummy the following year. Here, though, the supernatural is definitely at work, and once again, it has invaded a more rational order as opposed to the whole rational order breaking down. David Manners is able to call Zita Johan back from the abyss at the end, which wouldn't work if any kind of mooring was impossible as in the world of Vampire. However, The Mummy was one of those highly personal films. 
as all the great 30s universals were. And no one never did anything exactly like it again in the golden age of Hollywood. Maybe one of the stories in flesh and fantasy? I don't know. By the way, given the Kong connection to your vampiric initiation, I wanted to mention my latest column over on 18th Wall Productions website is part one of a celebration and examination of Kong screenwriter Ruth Rose's career. Part one, of course, being on Kong and her inestimable contribution she brought to the screenplay. It's on my Just Like in the Movies blog, and it's called and it's called Midwife of Kong. And I'm betting it was a C-section or a K-section, as in Kaiser or King. Just saying. Best Micah. Now, I haven't actually gone in to edit the recording yet of what Brenda did or what Brenda said. But she did say at one point to me, Micah's smart. And dude, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is what I love. You know, as Monster Kids, as fans of these movies, we can really just kick back and enjoy the movie for what it is. Or we can look at the movie and then get really into it, dive deep, deep cut style, and just really, you know, like you said, look at where the movie came from compared to what was going on here in the States, the philosophies in play, the different types of movies that were happening, what was happening historically. It's fascinating to me to think about this kind of stuff. It's also a lot of fun just to kick back and let the movie wash over you. I really appreciate you sending this in, man. And, uh, you know, this is publishable. I mean, this is something that you could expand and turn into something. You know, in my not-so-humble opinion, it would immediately have the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. And thanks for the heads up about the midwife of Kong. Actually, I was going to mention that anyway because I saw you post it on Facebook and I thought it was pretty cool. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. I feel like uh, that sometimes Ruth Rose doesn't get as much credit as she should for her involvement, not just in King Kong, but in the career of Ernest Schotzak and Marion C. Cooper. She really contributed a lot. And without her, I don't think we would have had King Kong. Uh, in the way that it was presented to us anyway. So thank you for writing in. Listeners, if you want to write in and be cool like Chris or Micah, the email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you want, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Okay, let's get into the show. Like I said earlier, we're talking about Attack of the Giant Leeches. And then after that, the Year of Frankenstein continues here on Monster Kid Radio, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Son of Frankenstein. Of course, that all happens right after this. Hark, a film of tender love and the screams of vampire death. Now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the vampire lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The vampire lovers, it's in color. And it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss the vampire lovers. Well, Cindy, 
This is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens... This casket. The mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now. And yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. There's something about this movie that feels very, um, sleazy and dirty to me. There's this weird sense of Man, we shouldn't be watching what we're about to be watching here, especially every time Yvette Vickers is on screen. I'm, of course, referring to the movie this week on Monster Kid Radio, Attack of the Giant Leeches. In the backwoods of the Everglades, 
The boys had only the storekeeper's woman to talk about. You want something, Cal? I sure do, honey. I know how to take care of a woman like you, do. Then, out of the swamp's depths, again appears horrifying, mysterious creatures thirsting for lover's blood. What are these giant mutations whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search? Whatever killed those people is still in that lake, and it's going to take more than dynamite to get it out. And then brings them back to life to gratify their distorted desires. So is that the reason I'm here? Is you saw it was a sleazy movie and the perfect podcaster is a Disney podcaster for a sleazy movie. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, before we started recording, we just spent how long? 10, 15 minutes going through the Playboy website looking for pictures of Yvette Vickers? Come on. What do you mean looking? <laughs> we found them. <laughs> oh, well, that's true. That's true. We, we Yeah. <laughs> Scott, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm good. Oh, Attack of the Giant Leeches. Man, this is uh, a, a movie. It's actually, <laughs> I actually really like it. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I kind of downplayed it a little bit, maybe. I really enjoy this movie. There is something about this that draws me, and part of it's the performances. I, I really like Yvette Vickers as a monster movie actress. I mean, of course, probably better known for her role in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. But there's just something about her that's kind of charismatic and not just because she appeared in Playboy. But there's a charisma here that draws me to her. But this movie also has one of my favorite actors that I've discovered over the past five, ten years from my work with Dorado Films. And that'd be Ken Clark. I'm a big fan of what he does and what he brings to the table. Uh, he did a lot of Euro spy films, Mission Bloody Mary, From the Orient with Fury, things like that. Special Mission Lady Chaplin, especially really, really good Euro spy type films. So to see him in an American production, it was kind of a treat for me. Of course, this is a movie I'd seen over and over again over the years. What's your experience with Attack of the Giant Leeches, Scott? Well, before that, uh, I just wanted to mention a little something about Ken Clark. I hope in those spy movies, he handles himself a little bit better than when he faces <laughs> Cal's shotgun in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he he does. He does. Scott, I'd really recommend you check some of these things out. I know you're a Bond guy, and, and these things are oftentimes referred to as like low-budget or bargain basement Bonds. I, I think you'd really enjoy them. I, I do, especially some of his work. Ken Clark's just a heck of a guy. Well, I definitely will check him out. I really enjoyed the um, Argo Man film that you shared with me. And it's very different than Argo Man. But yes. But I mean, that that time frame of movies and stuff. And mm -hmm. Argo man, uh, appeared on MST three K's live tour this year, which leads me to where I first saw attack of the giant leeches. And that is mystery science theater. Episode number four, zero six. Was that a Mike or Joel episode of Mike? Wasn't it? Yeah, um, fourth season. I'm, oh boy. Now you're, uh Oh, <laughs> Hey, you're, you're the misty, not me. So I, I just assumed you would know. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Joel. I'm, I'm, really? yep, it's Joel. It's Joel. Okay. I, I'm actually, w uh, watching it on YouTube right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So yes, the fourth season is when Joel left in the middle. So I couldn't remember exactly. Oh, okay. So it's one of, one of Joel's last ones, but yes, 
Attack of the Giant Leeches. So the first time you saw it was when it was on MST3K. I'm assuming you watched it during its original run yes. on TV. Yep. That was the first time that I saw the film. And I have since watched it straight or non-misted, depending on the uh, phrasing you want to use. <laughs> the movie is in the public domain, so it is out there on YouTube. YouTube, archive.org, I'm sure Vimeo. Amazon has three or four different listings for it, and it's in a thousand different low-budget public domain box sets. Mill Creek probably has a <laughs> has it four or five times represented in any year's releases of product coming out from them. That all said, I wish there was a better transfer out there somewhere. <laughs> oh, I do too. I watched it last night off of YouTube on my laptop, and I had to turn the brightness all the way up on my laptop to be able to see what was going on. Every time I started it, I went to Amazon to stream it. Because, I mean, I have the Mill Creek sets and all that. So I could have pulled it out that way. But I was being lazy. I wanted to watch it on my Kindle. So I went to Amazon to try to watch it that way. And everyone started so murky and so hard to see. I was like, come on, Amazon, you got to have something better here for me. But they didn't. Uh, It's all the same washed out, blown out transfer that you see on YouTube. Which kind of, again, makes it feel a little snuffy (laughs) (laughs) well the the one thing i would recommend to anybody who does watch this on youtube like i did is i turned on the closed captioning not that i (laughs) couldn't hear the uh the actors but it's the youtube's uh closed caption where it's not actually done by a person it's a computer trying to guess what the people are saying and some of the scenes where the characters are really into the cajun it's hilarious to read. <laughs> <laughs> so Yvette Vickers' character is named a cow, or is no. married to cow. Yeah, he's married to cow. C-O-W yes. instead of cow, C-A-L. Yes. <laughs> and that relationship actually is probably, and this is, I can't claim that this was an original thought from me. This is something that another reviewer on YouTube uh, said. That relationship is probably the most science fictional part of this whole film. <laughs> Yeah, the whole time I'm watching this film, I'm like, why is she with him? It wasn't an arranged marriage or you know, <laughs> what's going on? Why would she pick this guy? He won her in a game of poker, you know, it's, it's, it's this weird kind of, yeah. I mean, later on in the film, she talks about she her this is her second husband because her first one um, was arrested and she immediately divorced him and she just wanted someone to be nice to her. And. Cal must have waved to her or something. I don't know. <laughs> he smiled at me, so, you know. <laughs> I married. <laughs> hey, yeah, it, it's, it's Brenda smiled at me, and I was hooked, so, you know, I get it. But <laughs> Tracy just couldn't run fast enough, so. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so my experience with this movie, wow, my experience with Attack of the Giant Leeches, Uh, this movie was actually probably one of the first films that I saw that made me realize that classic monsters exist outside of universal. Uh, when I first started becoming really aware of these movies, and I think I've told this story before, you know, in in grade school, I read the Crestwood house books, those thin orange and black and white hardcover books, each one about a monster of some sort. Love those books. Slowly trying to rebuild, a, or not even rebuild, just build a collection of those books myself. I mean, within viewing distance, within sight in my home, everywhere I can see one. I, the Creature from the Black Lagoon one's over here by the bookshelf next to my computer. 
those books were so important to me, but they were obviously universal centric. I have a few things like the blob, but mostly universal. And when I started watching these movies, it was the universal. So it was always universal because that's, you know, the most accessible, right? Whether it was the shock package on TV or what was out there because universal was always putting them out. One year for Christmas, a friend of mine by the name of Jared, who was also the guy that got me into filmmaking at the time, gave me Attack of the Giant Leeches on VHS. And at first I was a little confused and kind of disappointed. Like, what the heck is this? And when I watched it, there was this weird kind of expansion in my brain that suddenly classic monsters don't have to be from Universal or even Hammer, because I knew a little bit about Hammer at that point. They could come from anywhere. There were so much more out there. There was so much more out there than Dracula, Frankenstein, giant spiders and ants. You know, there was so much more. And this movie really kind of was that entry point for me. Is it a quality film? Well, compared to Creature from the Black Lagoon or, or Curse of Frankenstein, any of those? I don't know. But it's it's important to me for that reason. Yeah, I, I did get the vibe a little bit of Creature, especially near the end of the film, where there's a lot more underwater scenes. Mm-hmm. But but you could tell Creature did the underwater scenes better because these <laughs> look like they're filmed through a jelly jar. <laughs> <laughs> But it's oh, still, the entire film feels that way, Scott. Come on. <laughs> but it still had, you know, they attempted to do some of the things, same same things that Creature had, you know, had done with those underwater shots, and I, I appreciated that. It was it was fun to see that on a on a lower budget. Yeah, Corman was involved in this, right? This is oh, a Corman yeah. film. Yeah, this okay. is a Corman film. I like this Corman. A lot. I like Roger Corman as a personality now, and I'm glad that he's still out there making money and employing a whole bunch of people with the movies that he does with sci-fi and all that. I'm glad that he's still part of the industry. I just bought his new uh, Death Race movie. Hey, there you go. But I like this Corman. This is the Corman that I gravitate towards this style of filmmaking, the quick and dirty, let's make it happen in eight days, which I think is how long they worked on this one. You have a low budget, so you've got to be creative and still crank something out. I know a lot of it was commercially driven, and you know, you're shooting and producing films for the market. I get it, it's very mercenary, but I feel like this Corman is the one that speaks to me the most, partly because of the output and the subject matter. But man, I really like this movie, I really like it. It's amazing to me a film. And this is a perfect example of it, of Corman's work, where he doesn't have a whole lot of money, he doesn't have a whole lot of time, but he turns out an entertaining and a movie that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of movies from this time frame where they don't have a whole lot of money, and when you watch the film, it doesn't make sense. This doesn't follow that. This one, there's a contained story that makes sense. And I know that's you know a very low bar, but I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do like this. I do like this film. I've always have a soft spot in my heart for films that the main baddie or the the monster or whatever is born from the atomic atom. And I had forgotten that this is one of those films that these giant leeches, they don't say for sure that this happened. They're speculating that since they're so close to Cape Canaveral, and they use nuclear energy in their first stages of, of the launches that some of that, there might've been some, you know, regular sized creatures that got some of that and grew big. 
I always love that idea of, you know, the giant answer that whatever for, you know, the nuclear age and how it was going to really terrorize us and grow these giant lizards or everything. I always forget that this is one of those films too. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I have that same issue. I mean, like I said, I, I really enjoy the movie. I've watched it a, numer- a number of times over the years. But when you first dive into it, it's not the first thing you think of, right? Correct. I mean, it feels like a giant monster movie, which I guess overall are kind of atomic horror movies. But you don't get that vibe just looking at the movie poster or just even the title, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get into it. You don't get that nuclear atomic vibe until you actually start watching the movie. And then it's there. And, you know, it's it's one of the things that people were scared of. It's one of those things that got exploited a lot, sometimes in a lot better films like them. Well, I think a lot of the reason why you don't see it or you, when you see the movie poster or whatever is because the leeches, yeah, they're giant compared to regular leeches, but they're not 50 feet tall. They're no. not 100 feet long. So they do have arms. Yeah. <laughs> well, which I like that they, they make sure they mention that at the very beginning. That oh, and they look like they have arms like a man, you know, just to explain the bit of the costuming they ended up with. I, I do like that idea, but the odd thing is as poor as the copies we have, I never could tell that they had arms. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> Me neither. I, there's got to be a print of this somewhere, right? I hope so. Please let a print of this turn up. I think it would get a lot more attention and respect because it is a tight little movie. It's it's well-written, and I think the performances are solid. I, I know that Yvette Vickers is better known for Attack of the 50-Foot Woman when it comes to these types of movies, but I really liked her performance in this. Oh, I, I think she's too. probably a better actress in this. I do, too. I really like her, and unfortunately, she exits the film way too early. Yeah. True. I, I would like to have seen more of her and, and cow, but then a cow, of course, cow leaves really early as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to call him cow from now on. That's why I'm giggling. <laughs> Played by Michael Emmett in the film. I, I don't know much about him. He feels like a guy who turns, Oh, of course he was a knight of the blood beast as well, which is also where, some of the music from this <laughs> comes from or turns up in. I don't know much about the guy other than I think he probably has this. And he seems like a character actor type. Yes, definitely. And you're talking about the, the music. I kept thinking, Oh, the underwater scenes. I thought the creature music was going to show up because it shows up in so many movies, but I was wrong on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the music uh, was stock music used in night of the blood beast, as well as beast from the haunted cave, which again, Another Corman film. Uh, Michael Forrest is one of the leads in that, and he's just phenomenal. That's something I want to talk about on Monster Kid Radio in the future, actually. Down the line. That'd be fun. Anyway, uh, I'm digressing. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fun little movie. I I do enjoy it quite a bit. I don't know why it's taken us so long to talk about it (laughs) on MKR, especially considering my history with it. I never saw it on MST3K, and, and, and people know my opinions and and my back and forth on mst3k and this is not one that i saw there i do wonder has it ever been released in one of the blu-ray or dvd sets for mst3k yeah Uh, i I think so i think it's been released i do wonder if there's a little documentary about it out there somewhere just just to learn a little bit more you know that would depend on whether it was released by shout factory or by rhino because the shout factories do the um in-depth behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it was released by Rhino in 2006. Okay. In uh, volume six. Cheapskate Theater released an HD download of the film on June 7th, 2016, featuring a new introduction by Toby Radloff. Who's that? He's a former file clerk who became a minor celebrity owing his appearance in Cleveland writer Harvey Pecker's autobiographical comic book, American Splendor. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Who was it that put it out? It's an HD? Cheapskate Theater. Huh. 15 bucks. This special Cheapskate Theater presentation also includes the Toby Shorts, People of Walmart, Truth of Advertising, and Best Damn Root Beer. (laughs) All right. No reviews of it, unfortunately. Well, it is a shame. I think this movie could deserve or or does deserve another look. Oh, I do, too. Uh, I agree. Should be seen by more people. I liked the music. I know it's all stock music, but I'm, I'm going to harp on that music. I love the music in this a lot, <laughs> a whole lot. So uh, I would recommend people at least watch the opening credits. Cause I, <laughs> well, the, the other thing about these musics, right? You, you, these musics. That's the thing about these soundtracks, right? These movies is that if you've got a good soundtrack, you got some good music and it, it suddenly feels a lot more epic than it really is. Oh, definitely. And this one does have that kind of epic feel because of the opening credits, that sort of thing. Uh, excuse me for a second. Wednesday. You're adorable. Sorry. Excuse me, you're adorable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow I, I feel like the audience for this probably wouldn't mind that I just took a break to tell my cat she's cute. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the music in this is definitely uh, a, a treat. But I, again, I'm going to go back to the performances. Yeah, 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 the monster's cool. It's kind of hard to see the monsters. It's hard to see the giant leeches, at least the details with like the giant arms or what are the arms like a man on it. But the performances, I love seeing Ken Clark. I, I could follow Ken Clark into anything, really. I just love his turn. And he's like so self-assured when he's with Yvette or Liz. But as soon as uh, Cal shows up, just the way he turns is he's really good. Yeah. Yeah. He was also in um, 12 to the Moon. Yep, I've seen that film. Which is a movie. You've seen this one? Yeah. I think we've talked about this, didn't we? Yeah, it's. That, I think it was on uh, MST3K as well. Really? Because this was more of a, that's more of a science fiction serious film. But I wouldn't be surprised. I mean. Well, you, you know, I like science fiction films. You know, growing up, I watched those more than I watched horror films. So I've seen 12 to the Moon. I, I apologize for Wednesday mewing in the background here. <laughs> it's going to be hard to cut it all out, so sorry. Well, yeah, I knew that, but I'm just surprised it was MST3K'd. It just feels like a more serious film than than most. Let me double check. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Nope, episode 524, 12 to the moon. Hmm. I wouldn't mind talking about that with you, sir. It's a good film. Show. I like that it, film. It's really good film. Mm-hmm. Really good film. Settle down, Wednesday. Come here. Okay, or not. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you like Ken Clark. It means that eventually, someday, I'll get you to watch his uh his Eurospy <laughs> stuff. You know, for the upcoming Eurospy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's another actor in this film that I really like, and he's a character actor, Gene Roth, playing the sheriff. 
<laughs> I like the he's great. Character. Oh, the sheriff's <laughs> awesome. You know, and that's one of the things that I love about fifties monster movies. You get a little bit of it in the sixties, but not as much. The cops, for the most part, are still good guys. You know, you're not questioning them so much like you would later in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, every once in a while you get like a, a, a cop who doesn't trust the teenagers and likes the blob or something like that. But for the most part, these symbols of authority are still respected and somebody you can go to, right? Yeah. And the sheriff in this, <laughs> I love. I love the fact that at first he he thinks that um, the, the guy from the Fish and Wildlife, he's like, he shouldn't be worried about you know that's federal level you don't you don't need to be worried about us county folk but what i like is he still watches everything and at the end his mind has changed yes and and, and you don't see that too often Mm -hmm. there's some real solid performances probably better than this movie deserves oh i agree uh it's it's such a low budget uh it looks like it was actually shot on eight days i don't know what the budget was on this, uh, oh, yes, I do. If the internet is to be believed, $70,000. Wow. Granted, it's just barely an hour long. It's short. It was probably designed to be part of a double feature, and it was released as such with Bucket of Blood, which is another Corman flick. Later on in the 60s, it was released with House of Usher, which I feel is a better fit with Bucket of Blood than House of <laughs> Usher. <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, see House, House of Usher. Which is a good film. But it's very different. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Derek said this movie is short, and one hour and two minutes is its runtime. It's it's a quick one. But, you know, again, that's something else that I like about this movie is that it comes in, it delivers its story, and it gets out. Mm-hmm. It's done. It doesn't have a lot to do other than tell its story and, and be done with it. And I know a lot of monster movies from this era are shorter, partly because they're drive-in fare. You know, the shorter the movies, the more you can pack into the theater, right? So I, I get that. This one doesn't seem too short. It seems just about the right amount of time for me. Uh, I agree. This, I, I still would like to watch this movie maybe with Bucket of Blood or something. I think it would be a fun double feature to recreate. Mm-hmm. But if you just want to sit down and, and watch the film, there's no fluff in this film. There's no scenes where you, know, you, you think, why are we being told X, Y, or Z? This movie has a message. It knows what it's going to do and does it. We don't get the mini science lesson that you would get out of, oh, say, yeah. like some of the bigger budget, bigger studios films, you know, which I love. I mean, I love Jack Arnold's, we're going to tell you science for about five minutes before we get into the movie or whatever. And I, I'm down with that. I like it a lot. But yeah, there's not, you don't always need it. Yeah, because you could have had, okay, we've discovered that there are leeches in this pond. Uh, so we're going to have to use potassium. Now, potassium will do X, Y, Z, you know, no, we're going to get them with explosions. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to blow them up. <laughs> Everybody knows that. You don't need the, the scene where you describe what's going on. You sure you don't need that scene to tell us how dynamite works? No. <laughs> <laughs> Even though, seriously, I, I looked at it, I was like, how does the, how does the wick stay lit underwater? But that's. <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, there is that, I suppose. And that's something else, too, that I appreciate about these movies, is that I'm going to call it the next generation effect. In Star Trek The Next Generation, which I'm a fan of, in Next Generation, there's always that, well, we can't just go in and destroy everything. We've got to understand it, which is fine. Whereas in the original Star Trek, if there is a monster killing people, you go out and you kill it first. Yep. And 
I'm maybe, you know, as, as the kind of person that I am in real life, you know, I'm a vegetarian, I'm an animal lover. I don't want to just go out and kill everything that looks at me funny, but I do appreciate that this movie is true to what it is. And it's like, Oh, giant leeches. We're not going to study it. We're not going to capture it. We're not going to try to put it in a lab and dissect it and figure out how it works. We're not going to have a science lesson. I've got some dynamite. Let's fix this problem. But then again, I do like the way that this movie plays with that a little bit. Cause you've got the guy from the, the wildlife, like, no, you're not going to do that. Right. But it was the, you know, the doctor was like, no, I am going to go do this. And he goes, does it? <laughs> yeah, that's the answer. It doesn't matter. I mean, you've got the, yeah, you've got the, the game warden who, <laughs> Steve Benton is his name. That's Ken. It's Ken. And I get it, you know, but that's not what these movies are about. I mean, it's about dropping napalm on them when, you know, it's about dropping the dynamite. It's about going in with a rote known and then tranquilizing him and shooting him when he gets too close to Julie Adams. I get it. That's what these movies are about. And that's what I, 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 it's just a more pure style of storytelling. But one thing I do like about, uh, about Steve is man, he should, he knows how to show a woman a good time. Oh yeah. <laughs> that date he takes uh, Nan on where they go out on the boat to try to find the creatures. I mean, he's just, Great date there. <laughs> He's a lot more smooth in yep. the Eurospy films. I'm just saying. <laughs> He's a lot better. <laughs> but I, in all honesty, I can see where he could be that. He shows a little of that in this movie. I, I like the barbs he and Nan have back and forth in this film. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jan Shepard. Mm-hmm. I like some of their, their back and forth a lot. They had some good chemistry. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder, did that... It, what would have happened if they could have done more together, that sort of thing? Because I think I'd watch it. I thought yeah. they had a good back and forth, a good relationship. Kind of like a low-budget, screwball comedy vibe, almost. I could see that. Almost. Almost, yeah. Now, when we were talking about doing this movie, uh, I did send you a note because this uh, film has been remade. Why? <laughs> why, Scott? I take it you didn't watch any of it. No, I, I'm familiar with the filmmaker, um, Brett, something or other, right? Brent Kelly, Brett Kelly. Yeah. Who has done a number of low budget, modern day ish kind of remakes and, and monster movies and that sort of thing. And I probably have some of his movies in my movie collection here, but I tried to watch it. It, Oh, is it, is it rough? It's rough. It came out in 2008. It is also on YouTube. I uh, turned it on to beginning and then because I wanted to see how it's different. I wanted to see if he made any more changes, you know, you know, changes to it. I got to as far as where Cal and Yvette are arguing and early on in the movie and Yvette leaves. Mm-hmm. That's as far as I got in the film. So maybe five, ten minutes into the film. Oh, wow. I just couldn't stand it any longer. Well, that's a shame. You know, I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt because – you and I did the killer shrews, the original one and, and the more modern remake sequel to the film. And we both kind of liked the sequel for what it was. So I was, yeah. I was giving this the benefit of the doubt, but like I said, I could only make about 10 minutes into the film and I, I couldn't go any longer. Well, for every one of those situations, we have giant Gila monster and Gila. Yeah. So, good point. um, there is an interview over at the website for Robert hood, where he talks to Brett Kelly about this and he asks the 1950s version had some strong sexual undertones should we expect the same here in the remake and kelly's response is yep <laughs> although yvette vickers in her prime is something to behold and yeah she is 
it goes back to that whole uh, charisma thing, right? Yep. <laughs> and to be fair, when Scott and I were looking up Eva Vickers on Playboy, this was the era of Playboy where they weren't nude all the time, and she's clothed. Yeah, the whole in all the photos so you can. Yeah, every yeah. picture of her, she is fully clothed. She went on there to promote this film, Attack of the Giant Leeches. So that may be true, but uh, we weren't ogling at naked Yvette Vickers. No. Um, she's in some very wet, clingy clothes in a swimming pool. <laughs> but the, you know, the, the 2008 <laughs> version, that scene where Yvette's changing clothes in the, in the 59 version, she starts off with a lot less clothes on in the 2000. She's not naked, but just a lot less clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, uh, I have seen some of his work. Like I said, uh, I've actually reviewed one of his movies on a previous podcast, uh, called my dead girlfriend. And yeah, anyway, um, I don't feel the need to see his, uh, attack of the giant leeches remake. Uh, yeah, I don't, but do, okay. but do try to, for those listening, if have not seen attack of the giant leeches, do track that one down the 1959 version. Oh Yeah. It's kind of a no-brainer here. I mean, I, I think <laughs> this movie has a lot to offer, and it offers more than the poster seems to offer. You know, the, the poster's great. It, it's a, I would love to have a copy of this poster. It's fantastic. You know, and it, I love these old posters anyway. I think listeners have kind of picked up on that over the years, and I love the artwork of these old monster movie posters, especially from the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s. There is just something about that style of artwork where it's painted, not photoshopped, and you know, it wasn't something that was printed up with like somebody had a font collection. It was actually hand-painted lettering and things like that. And I love the tagline on the poster for this crawling horror rising from the depths of hell to kill and conquer attack of the giant leeches. Oh man, that just gets me going. <laughs> it, it is a great poster. And with the version of films we've got, this is the, the poster is the best way to see the leeches. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And it's true. It, it really is true. The poster probably makes it look a little bit more bigger budget than it is. It's a full color poster too, but the leeches are awesome. I would love to see those leeches in their their glory. I would love to see a, a nice transfer of this somewhere. I would too. Just to make out, especially the beginning, just at the very beginning, because the filmmakers don't beat around the bush. It's not like they hide the monster till the third act. They're right there. Yeah, you got Cow out there trying to shoot him at the beginning. Yeah, so we we dive right into it. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't so, cow. It was another because cow was Cajun. Yeah, another Cajun. <laughs> it wasn't cow. You, you dive right into it. I mean, and that again, we're not beating around the bush. There's no science lesson. There's no. All right, this is what's happening at Cape Canaveral, and what happened here, and da da da, affected the communities down the way. And here's a swamp, and oh, this stuff got into it, and oh, there's leeches. No, we don't spend any of that. They just dive right into it. Well done. Yep. What do we know about the director? Did Bernard Kowalski? <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. I don't know why I laugh. <laughs> I don't. I'm trying. I'm looking. I don't know much about him. I don't but, either. And I'm looking through. Man, he was working up until 2000. He did some episodes of Baywatch Nights. <gasps> really? Yeah. Seven episodes of I, Knight Rider. I have never seen Baywatch Nights, <laughs> but I'm obsessed with Baywatch Nights. You're familiar with Baywatch Nights, right? Yes. <laughs> What, what was his name, uh, his lifeguard's name? David Hasselhoff's I, Mitch. Wasn't it Mitch? I, I've, 
I've never watched Baywatch. So yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Mitch Baywatch nights is him doing his detective agency stuff when he's not being a lifeguard. Oh, okay. And supernatural stuff happens. <laughs> well, he did. Awesome. He, he did do night of the blood beast. We've mentioned that already. Okay. And hot car girl actually is one that I've seen. Uh, and <laughs> I think I kind of liked it. <laughs> um, Oh, I love the poster. I love the poster for Hot Car Girl. <laughs> that poster's awesome. <laughs> so there's a poster here that I'm obsessed, a movie here that I'm obsessed with that I need to track down and watch. It's <laughs> it's the Snake movie. S S S S S S S S S. They're gonna say it's either that or the tire on Hot Car Girl giving out. I'm not sure which. There you go. There you go. Now Hot Car Girl is actually kind of cool. But yeah, I mean the guy's been direct. I don't know much about this guy, but wow, what a career, huh? Oh, he did some episodes of The Rebel with Nick Adams. He's he's done quite a lot of television. Jake and the Fat Man, Magnum P.I., several episodes, Knight Rider. Hmm. And Baywatch Nights, yes. baby. <laughs> Baywatch Nights. We ought to do a podcast devoted to that, an episode-by-episode episode breakdown. Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually, you don't want in on this magic? No. Come on. He's actually done six episodes of one of my favorite television shows of all time, Perry Mason. 1961. I'm serious. I love that show. Barry Mason, huh? Hmm? Oh, he did some Beretta. Okay, I want to know more about this guy. He, this, he's actually he's had a, a heck of a career. Look at this dude. If you go under his writer credits, he wrote an episode of Jake and the Fat Man and it wrote an episode of Beretta. Oh, I'd love to see this movie. Terror in the Sky from the 70s. Uh, transcontinental flight. The flight crew suffers from food poisoning and becoming incapacitated, so they have to find a passenger who can fly. Ah, yes. I had the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> this looks awesome actually well it's a 1970s disaster flick right yeah oh oh roddy mcdowell's in that movie okay we gotta track this movie down we gotta track this movie down anyway okay we're we're way off track here but looks like some good stuff here i thought the direction was solid i, I guess that's where i was kind of going with this is the direction is tight there's no wasted momentum here there's no wasted movement the way he works the camera that he and the way he works the actors and actresses in front of it it, it's pretty efficient and i get the impression that corman probably had to work that way when he was hiring directors and such because he didn't have a lot of time or money you know you you don't get 40 or 50 takes you you shoot one or two takes and move on to the next one and i felt like kowalski had a pretty firm grip on what was going on here and was able to pull that off especially when you're dealing with water i mean i feel like that's a variable right that that could be something that could cause problems down the line if you're not prepared to shoot in or underwater he he handled it just fine you know just go back to kowalski's other work just real quick terror in the sky i thought it was the case but i wanted to double check my line about having the lasagna fits really well because much of the plot of that film and its original screenplay were used for airplane. Nice. <laughs> I thought I knew there was a movie that airplane borrowed a lot from, and I was thinking it was terror in the sky and it is right on. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> because this movie is viewable, it's so easily accessible by so many people, public domain, YouTube, archive.org. It's all over the place. It's easy to see. It's easy to track down, right? It's easy to track down. People can watch this saying, I, I'm holding out for that good transfer, and maybe I'll look into that cheapskate theater release. 
But in the meantime, I'll, I'll settle with what I can get online and just imagine those leeches look as cool as supposed to pursue. Although, let's be honest, okay? There have been other Roger Corman movies that have amazing-looking posters with monsters that don't appear in the movie at all. And There's a beast with a million eyes. Is that one? <laughs> and if you look in the trivia section of IMDb for giant leeches, it says the giant leeches were played by actors in sack-like suits made of thin black plastic raincoat-like material complete with fake suckers sewn on them. See, that sounds pretty complex and, <laughs> and elaborate, right? Especially for a Corman film. <laughs> right. Man. Yeah, I know I say this a lot, but if they look as cool as I think they did, I want an action figure. Yeah. But I'll settle for the poster. So if anybody's had an original Attack of the Giant Leeches poster, they don't mind me holding on to <laughs> I got you. I got it. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably. See, that's the, the one thing about these low budget monster movies that I, I mean, I love these movies so much, but their posters are so expensive and sometimes probably bring in more money than the movies themselves cost to make. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Oh, here's a neat little connection for me anyway. Uh, Dan Holler, Daniel Holler did the art direction of this movie. And Daniel Holler is the guy who is pretty much responsible for the three Lovecraft adaptations that are of this era for me. Monster of Horror, or Die, Monster, Die, excuse me, is the proper title. Uh, and the Dunwich Horror he directed. But he also did art direction on... The Haunted Palace, which is toted as an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, but is really an adaptation of Lovecraft. Uh, just nobody knew who Lovecraft was at the time, so Corman put Poe's name on it and put a Poe poem in the, in the beginning or end of it. I just did a quick eBay search, and there is no original uh, Attack of the Giant Leech's posters listed right now. That's because somebody heard this <laughs> and is like rolling it up and getting ready to send it to me. They took it off eBay, right? Could be. Sure. But you can get a 14 <laughs> by 36 uh, replica for fifteen eighty eight. Or a twenty-four by thirty-six replica for sixteen ninety-nine. But it's a cool poster, right? I'm not. I'm not wrong. Am no, I? it is a great poster. It's a great poster. I dug. I dug this movie. I'm glad we gave it a good look. Is there anything else you want to say about the movie before we sign off? I'm glad uh, we watched it too. It, you know, I'd seen it once before, non misted, and I'm glad to verify that. I did like it without having to rely on Joel and the bots to help me through it. But you did have the auto translate closed yes, captioning. I did. I, I should go back and watch it that way now myself because it, it's <laughs> you know get, get a, see how Cow is doing. Yeah, you know <laughs> it is silly but fun. Well, for my money, it's probably my favorite Yvette Vickers genre film. Over 50-Foot Woman? You know, I like 50-Foot Woman, but I have a lot of problems with the pacing of 50-Foot Woman. You don't have that problem Uh, here. No, no, there's no time (laughs) (laughs) to really have it. And maybe we probably ought to just say recognize Eva Vickers as kind of unfortunate. Yes. What happened at the end of her life. Um, uh, So we'll just say that, kind of leave it at that. I think people kind of know what we're talking about. But, uh, you know, I got my Eva Vickers. I got my Ken Clark. I got some cool music. I got what I'm imagining was a really cool monster. I'm, I'm set, man. I'll watch this movie. I'll pop it in on a semi-regular basis if I'm not watching anything else, which we all know is not the case. Yeah. I highly recommend this not only for the, the actors, but also some of the, the bit part players. I like Gene Roth was, was really good. And I do like Michael Emmett as cow. Oh, Cal's great. Isn't he? Mm-hmm. 
He's, he's just a fun. The, the characters feel real without being too cartoonish. And that's yeah, something else that's, that I think the, the actors bring to it. Yeah, that is very true. Except for the two guys that go out to try to find the bodies that maybe cross the line just a hair. Well, I just, yeah, well, more, they're not in the, not in yeah. it very long, but yeah, they're more, more of the stereotypic deep South Southern, uh, Cajun person. Overall though, really dug it. Yep, me too. Me too. Really enjoy this film. Well, thanks for having me come on to talk about the film. Yeah. People need to run out and check it out or download it or stream it or imagine it after looking at the poster. <laughs> it's out there. For easy to see. It's out there, man. All right. Yeah. No, thanks for doing this, man. Why don't you run on, run along back to your Disney corner. Huh? All right, I will. <laughs> Got some, some work to do over there at DisneyIndiana.com. That was a lot of fun and a breeze to edit. Like I said, Scott and I have been podcasting together for quite some time, and uh, I recognize his ums and uhs, and he recognizes my uh, inhalations just as I'm about to laugh inappropriately. We edit each other really well, and it was just a blast to have him on the show again. It's, I feel like it's been too long, but there are so many movies that I want to cover with him, so... Hopefully, it won't be too much longer before we have him on. Again, of course, if you want to hear more of Scott and I together, 1951 Down Place is back. It's a quarterly show over at 1951downplace.com. And as of right now, Scott is handling post-production on the most recent episode in which we talk about the movie Taste the Blood of Dracula. That'll be coming soon. So pay attention to 1951downplace.com or 1951downplace on iTunes for that. Once again, Scott, thanks for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Death Race 2000. In the year 2000, hit-and-run driving is no longer a crime. It's the national sport. Death Race 2000, starring David Carradine. He was built by the world's finest surgeons to drive the fastest car ever designed, and nothing can stop him now. Death Race 2000, a cross-country road wreck. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Hot Rod Girls, the drama of growing youngsters. Like pretty Lori Nelson, she loves past cars, but wants to be sure about love. Don't ever shut me out again. Chuck Connors, a cop young enough to want to help hot rodders. John Smith, who likes to pep up racing motors. Mark Andrews, a newcomer, bringing new thrills and new danger. I got a feeling you'll be hearing from me very soon. Going out and don't try to stop me. Don't get in my way. Here's excitement that hits hard, packed with the dangerous thrills of hot blooded youngsters showing off to hot rod girls. Like Roxanne Arlen, named by newspaper man The Wiggle, a thrill chaser who never stops. roulette of the rock and roll set. You'll know the tops in thrills when you see Hot Rod Girl. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. 
Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Honeydew, Podcast. Syndrome, Even after five years, we're Alfred still miles away from the nearest the Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Once this picture sinks its fangs into you, you will never be the same. Don't say it. Hiss it. Plus another spine-chilling hit, The Boy Who Cried Werewolf, rated PG. Twenty years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, ming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after twenty years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, I know. I do thought we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Dugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You'll see that. They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill. Grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson. Her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers.
Before I start talking about Son of Frankenstein, that trailer that I play, it had been out of circulation for a long time. It was recently discovered within the past few years as a nitrate version of the film trailer, and that's just cool that somebody put that up online. It's available on YouTube, which is where I pulled the audio from. It's a really neat trailer, and... It's a really neat movie. Son of Frankenstein is the third film in the Universal Frankenstein run. And before I get too much more into Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein, just I want to acknowledge that I know that while at least time anyway, Universal is kind of the big game, the, the player when it comes to Frankenstein films. Between the Thomas Edison Frankenstein and then Universal getting their hands on it and starting their films, there were a couple of other movies out there. Unfortunately, they're considered lost films, which is why I didn't mention them. In 1915, there was a movie called Life Without Soul. It is considered a lost film, unfortunately, so it's not something that I can say I've seen or know much about. It was produced by Edison, which means there's a good chance when the films were sent back to Edison, the films were destroyed and the silver was recycled for future films. So I don't know if we'll ever find that one. Of course, that's kind of what I thought about the original Frankenstein as well. So maybe it'll turn up at some point. But that was the second Frankenstein film, and it was here in the States. The third was an Italian silent film from 1920. It translates to The Monster of Frankenstein. Il Mostro di Frankenstein is maybe the Italian pronunciation. I don't speak Italian, but I don't really know. Uh, again, this one is also considered lost and couldn't really tell you too much more about it. Let's talk a little bit about Son of Frankenstein. Now, I've talked about Son of Frankenstein here on the show a couple of times. Last October... In episode 341, Dwight Kemper dropped by and we talked about Son of Frankenstein and really talked about the movie itself and what it meant to him and to me and, you know, how it was used as background material for some of his novel work. And, and it's, it's awesome. Also, if you go back to 2015 and look at episode 242, you're going to find an interview that I did with Donnie Dunnigan, who played Peter von Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein. He also did the voice of Bambi. And we talk a little bit there about his time on set and talk a little bit about a movie project that may or may not get off the ground at this point. It's been a little while, but there is some good content in there and Donnie was a great guy to chat with. So there's that. What I want to talk a little bit about though right now regarding Son of Frankenstein is that it came out at a different time for Universal. Now the Lemleys, Carl Lemley and family, they were in charge of Universal, but when they left or were ousted, it's not like the new Universal was into making monster movies. They you know, were not doing so well. They, they made some lower budget features, that sort of thing, but they weren't one of the big dogs in the industry. You know what I mean? And the British ban on horror movies really sunk any aspirations that anybody might have had for making a lot of horror pictures because they were counting on British dollars or I guess pounds to, to help make up the budget and make it profitable, make it a worthwhile endeavor. The reason Universal considered doing this sequel could probably be traced back to the fact that some theater owner decided to show the old Dracula and the old Frankenstein and, strangely, Son of Kong as a triple feature at his theater. And it blew up. It brought in so much money and became a huge deal. Now, eventually he dropped Son of Kong and it just became a double feature for the two. And it did show up in a few other places as well. In fact, in Salt Lake City, one theater showed this double feature and there was a riot. People trying to get in. There are reports of people breaking down windows and doors to get in to see this double feature in Salt Lake in the 1930s. To me, that's kind of mind-blowing. Bela Lugosi caught wind of this and 
good because he was not doing so well. Hollywood wasn't casting him. He wasn't getting a lot of parts. And at this point, you got to keep in mind that Karloff is still kind of the boogeyman. And since boogeyman pictures aren't really a thing right now, he's not getting a lot of work either. He's getting a little bit more than Lugosi, but still neither one of them are working regularly. When this double feature happens and it blows up, Universal decides, let's go forward. Let's make another Frankenstein film. And they cast Karloff. They brought Karloff back. Now, there were certain conditions. He talked the director and the production company down. The monster is no longer going to speak. I know he spoke in Bride of Frankenstein, but he's not going to speak now. I'm not speaking. So all of that was cut. But how do you work Lugosi into the mix? Well, at first, Lugosi was going to be the inspector in town. But the original pitch and the screenplay that ended up being shot morphed a lot over time thanks to the director and and of course the screenwriter as well was involved his name was i believe willis cooper and eventually that inspector character got renamed to krog which we know was played by lionel atwell eventually and a new character old igor is how he was referred to in the script or at least in one treatment we just know him as igor now that became the role for bela lugosi and man he dug his crooked teeth into that thing. And I say that because he had crooked teeth in the makeup. The makeup for Igor, the character design for Igor, is classic. And this is the first time we see an Igor in the Frankenstein mythos. I mean, we had Fritz in the stage play and, of course, in the first Universal film. But Igor, as the assistant to the mad scientist, to the mad doctor, this is where it comes from. And I would say for sure that Igor wouldn't be as much a thing if not for Lugosi's portrayal of the character. Lugosi had third billing. Karloff had second billing. Well, who's going to get first billing? The titular son of Frankenstein, of course. Well, who's going to be that? Well, the person we got is not who they wanted to begin with. They really wanted Claude Rains to play the new Frankenstein. It didn't work out. Then they wanted Peter Lorre, which would have been a lot of fun, but that didn't work out. Finally, we settle, and I say settle with air quotes because really it's not settling at all. You've got the great Basil Rathbone playing Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. And he approaches this film not as a monster movie, not as a horror film, but as a thriller, a dark drama. And he does it, oh, so well. He steals almost every scene he's in, which isn't hard to do considering that Karloff doesn't look super excited about being in the movie to begin with. So Rathbone really carries a lot of this movie. Roland V. Lee was the man chosen to direct the film, and he didn't come onto the project until right before they started shooting. They, they really didn't have anybody nailed down. What's interesting to me about Lee is that he had worked before with Karloff on a picture in 1931 and had to give Karloff a break to go work on the original Frankenstein. So Lee's contribution to the Frankenstein mythos for Universal could arguably be said to have started with the first film. But he also was a huge fan of Bela Lugosi and did not like how the studio was treating him. Now, Lugosi, I think his financial problems are pretty well known. They've been talked about in various places. I've probably mentioned it here on the show here and there. He did not integrate into society as well as Karloff and financially he didn't get treated nearly as well. And I don't know if it's because he was still quote unquote, the alien because of the thick accent or what the man was an incredible actor and deserved so much more than he ended up with in life. And he deserved a lot more than what they were going to pay him to be in son of Frankenstein. Now Rathbone got the most money. Then Karloff got a decent chunk, but Lugosi didn't get much and they really didn't want him to be on the payroll for very long. Give him a week or two and call it good. 
Well, Lee was not having any of that, and he kept extending Igor's role, making the part larger so that Lugosi would have to be on set from the beginning to the end of the production, getting paid every single week. And my understanding is that the Lugosi's held great respect and thanks to Roland V. Lee and his family for making that happen for him in 1939. The movie is wonderful. It looks so good. Now, we talked a lot about how James Whale's sets looked in the first Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. These sets look really good, too. They're not quite the same. I mean, it's a different style. In fact, it's kind of sort of a contemporary movie for the audiences of 1939. I mean, there's a car, for crying out loud. A modern-day car. So we have to change up our light sources a little bit. We have to change a few things up here and there to make it feel more modern, but they do such a good job with lighting that set, having these huge rooms to shoot in. Beautiful. And of course, it sounds amazing. This is where we start to get that traditional Frankenstein monster movie music that you'll hear in movies like this and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in House of Dracula. You start to hear this type of music now and it immediately, as soon as I hear it, it brings me back to these types of movies. The original Frankenstein didn't have a lot of music and Bride of Frankenstein had such a unique score compared to everything else. This is where this sound started, of course. And this music is by the incredible Frank Skinner. This movie could have been in color. At one point, Technicolor was considered. I mean, we're in the late 30s now, and there are color films starting to pop up. Big prestige pictures, like Wizard of Oz, was in 1939, and most of that film's in that brilliant Technicolor. Why didn't they do Technicolor in this? A couple of different reasons have been floated around. It was too expensive, or the monster makeup didn't look that great in Technicolor. The monster makeup was originally designed for black and white film. So when you go to color, you have to deal with the fact that you might have used a different shade or hue to make it look great in black and white. But once you go Technicolor, eh. Now, if you look hard enough, you can find clips of some makeup tests, some character tests online of the film in color. My understanding, though, is that that footage is actually owned by Sarah Karloff. So if you do see that footage, make sure you're seeing it from a source that actually licensed the footage, just to kind of show a little bit of respect to Karloff's family. If you haven't seen Son of Frankenstein, you're missing out. You need to see the movie. I'm going to say it's required viewing. It's one of the standards. And it's probably the best post-Bride sequels we're going to see when it comes to Universal Frankensteins. The artist... The poet. The figure model who loves to show it. Do you suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. You don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Enjoy yourself <laughs> where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying in a bucket of blood. Now you're gonna shoot me, don't shoot! Come to the land of living dreams where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. 
beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I, I want to get married. To you. Watch out, for here is a superhuman with the strength of a hundred men. No one and nothing seems able to stop him. Invincible, invulnerable. Argo Man, the fantastic Superman. But even he had his Achilles heel, a beautiful woman's kiss. Kill each other, kill each other. Man, the fantastic Superman. Kill each other. A man gifted with such extraordinary powers that ordinary men were helpless to cope with him. Everyone and everything was pitted against him. From hired killers to the most diabolical inventions of modern science. most beautiful women vied for his favors or the chance to kill him. Kill each other. The Fantastic Superman. Here is a picture which will take you on a journey out of time, carry you on a crest of thrills and laughter from start to finish. Be sure to see this Superman power. Miss it. 
that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience for me, for listening to the show, for downloading the show, for maybe reviewing the show in the iTunes store, liking us on Facebook, retweeting the tweets, and just engaging with the show. I love hearing from people. So if you want to email us like we talked about at the beginning, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can drop me a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. This is all available on our website over at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we talk about in the show, except for that piece that Micah Harris wrote about Ruth Rose. For whatever reason, it's currently not up over at 18th Wall. But as soon as it does go up, I'll make sure I put a link to it in the show notes and I'll announce it on Facebook as well. Uh, I talked to Micah about it and he said they're restructuring some things on the website. So that's why it's not there yet. Speaking of Facebook, you know, we've got a Facebook page and we have a Facebook group. If you're a Facebook user, please consider liking the page. If you want to join the group, well, it's really easy to do and we can chat it up over there. We've had a lot of conversations going on over there. I think Vampire spurred some conversations about how it's kind of different to watch a movie from that era or maybe even a silent film versus a more 30s, 40s, 50s style monster movie. That was a lot of fun. Dominique's involved in the group over there. Chris McMillan's involved. A lot of the people that are here on the show end up on Facebook. So if you want to chat with anybody that you've heard here on the show, and they're online, chances are you're going to find them in the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group. And I am slowly re-engaging with Instagram. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on Instagram, and you'll find probably pictures of the monster toys on my desk at my uh, day job. Help me. Help me. Or pictures of my cats, which you may have just heard one in the background now. In fact, Wednesday has been making herself known more and more these days, becoming more vocal and more needy and more adorable, which means that she sometimes makes some noise, like right now she's playing with a toy uh, while I'm recording. So every once in a while, you might have heard Wednesday in this episode as a surprise co-host. Big thanks to my wife, Brenda, for being part of the show this week. wasn't really planned. I just kind of mentioned that I had some really good emails, and she asked if she could read them. So it was awesome to have her back in the mix as well. Don't know if it's going to be a regular thing, but to have her this week was awesome. Also, uh, to go back to the YouTube thing that I mentioned at the top of the show, as of right now, I have plans to put something up this weekend. If you're a YouTube user, please head over there and subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio YouTube channel. What is coming up next week on the show? Well, this weekend, I'm recording... A huge episode. Actually, I'm recording two episodes with one of our favorite horror hosts, Dr. Gang Green. Larry Underwood's returning to Monster Kid Radio. And we're going to be recording about two different movies. One stars Boris Karloff. It's called The Black Room. The other one is a movie that neither one of us have seen. Turns out, Amicus put out a movie called Psychopath. And uh, it really didn't get a lot of buzz. I mean, it's not something that he knew about, and he's a huge Amicus fan. I didn't know anything about it. I actually stumbled across it doing some research on the movie City of the Dead. And I asked him if he'd be interested, and he jumped at it because he loves his Amicus. And he loves Robert Block, and this movie has a very Robert Block feel. So I'm recording about The Black Room and Psychopath with Larry this weekend. I'm going to get two episodes out of it. I don't know which one's going to make the cut first. I don't know which one I'm going to put out first. Why don't? you let me know. Why don't you drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or send me a voicemail and let me know what you want to hear first. Boris Karloff in the black room 
or psychopath? Let me know sometime this weekend. And uh, yeah, that's what you'll hear next week. I had a lot of fun this week on the show, and I hope you had as much fun as I did, if not more, although that's going to be kind of tough because I love doing the podcast. Thank you once again for being part of the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Midnight Tidal Wave that belongs to the surf band Surferific Dudes. It's on their EP Mountain Wave that came out earlier this year. Five tracks, five bucks. You can't beat that. They're at surferificdudes.bandcamp.com or just go to surferific.com or look them up on Facebook. However you do it, buy the album and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 